The joyousness of this hour is certainly great, isn't it? To come together on the first day of the week, to reflect not only upon the magnitude of God's blessings, but to look forward to living faithfully for Him throughout this week, and to make that great proclamation that He is our Lord and King. It's good to be here today, and good to see everyone able to be with us. We do continue to wish that those who are ill and sick, that things for them will soon be far better. Today, as we glorify the name of God, could we reflect on a lesson I've entitled, Reasons to Love the Church? The opening slide, as usual, will just be an introduction, and a very gentle one at that, because it makes mention of this truth. In the common walk of life that you and I enjoy, there may be many occasions in which we hear others make reflections upon, or at least share their opinion relative to the church. And sometimes we may hear those who ex exhibit coldness and lifelessness, and maybe even they picture the church as a rather impersonal group of people. On the other end of that spectrum, there are no doubt those who would quickly reply that the church is a wonderful, a beautiful thing. It's life-giving, it's strong, and it's so meaningful to me. I wonder today, what should our approach to the church, how should we feel about it? I will be quick to say, the Bible leaves us no doubt about this. We're supposed to love the church. We ought to appreciate so highly. The question now might be, why? What are some reasons as to why the New Testament helps us appreciate that our attitude should be that way? Let's develop that in some detail this morning with the hope that it will motivate us to appreciate the church and to approach it the way that the Master would want us to do it. The first reason is this one. We should love the church because the Lord does. You may have noted in the lesson text read in our hearing just a moment ago, it was shared with us, that interesting statement in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And it may well be that we often emphasize that portion of the verse, but note what follows it. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. One of the great truths presented so clearly in that passage is this. Jesus loved the church to the point that He was willing to give Himself for it. He died for it. He loved it that deeply. He loved it that wonderfully. If the Lord has that attitude toward it, then notice how that motivates us and what approach you and I should have for it. Acts 20 verse 28 will remind us this. Jesus on that occasion is described in the following way. As Paul addressed the elders of the church at that point, he said to them, Jesus purchased the church with His blood. Would you and I be willing to give of ourselves that deeply for the church? Would we be willing to go to that extent? That's a challenging question, isn't it? Sometimes you and I might not be willing to be inconvenienced in the slightest on behalf of the church, but that really is not the right attitude, is it? If the Lord loved it that deeply, and if it meant that much to Him, then ought not we give some thought to the fact it should mean more than that to us? In Hebrews 12, verse 2, you may notice that a reference is made to something that is shocking. I say absolutely shocking. Listen to it with me. We'll start in verse 1. Wherefore seeing, 
we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that are set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. Let's pause at that point. Hebrew writer, what are you saying? That as the Lord faced the cross, that He saw joy in it? That's what the text says. But yet the gospel accounts remind us of the excruciating pain that He endured, the difficulties that surrounded Him, and the nature of the death that it brought, and yet there was joy in it. May I ask where the joy was? You and I are it. Through the character and the nature of what He endured, He knew it would purchase a body that should be known as the church, and in that body there would be a thoroughfare of righteousness and access to the Father and the hope of all eternity with Him. Oh, the Lord knew about that joy. Isn't that a good motivation for us to love it too? To appreciate in that body the sweetness of what Jesus saw? You'll notice furthermore on that slide, could I not remind each of us that we are admonished to be like Jesus in so many ways? Couldn't Paul say it like this in 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And therefore we look to Him as the one who we seek to be like, the one who we seek to emulate. And if He loved the church, I'd suggest to you that since we're to be like Him, we ought to love it too. How much do you and I love it? How much do you and I, in fact, give of our intention and the greatness of our character toward it? That's really something to consider, isn't it? As we come near the close of that slide, it's thus a very important thing, isn't it, for us to have the right attitude toward the church, and that should be our love for it. What about a second reason, though? What else would be something for us to consider? Might we ask what the church is? That too will be a great motivating factor. I realize full well that when we give thought to the nature of the church, one of the issues that comes so quickly to our mind, that's a group of people that assemble. They come together, they sing, and they pray, and they do these various things. But it goes much deeper than that. Oh, it's true, the church is a worshiping body, no question about that. But notice what the church actually is. The church is the sphere. It is the organization of the saved. Why do we say that? Because the New Testament presents it like this. On the very day of Pentecost, you and I recall the church began that day. That is to say, it was established. The Holy Spirit and the power thereof was poured out on the apostles in the opening verses of Acts chapter 2. Peter and the others stood up and preached those magnificent sermons. And at the conclusion of the sermon, about 3,000 people responded. They were baptized into Christ, Acts 2.41. As that took place, notice the church had begun. And then verse 47 will make this interesting statement. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. The saved are in the church. They aren't found anywhere else. At the time they obey the gospel, the Lord adds them to the church, and so you're not going to find the saved anywhere else. 
If you're saved, you're in the church. If you're not in the church, you're not saved. Now that leads us to contemplate this. Should that not be a reason to love it? Because if I'm in it, then I am in that group that the Lord has declared to be saved. My name is in the book of life. And I have the assurance that at judgment all shall go well with me. But yet if I'm not in the church, what does that say about verses like Ephesians 5.23? Jesus is the Savior of the body. So if you're not in the body, you're not saved. You don't have a Savior. And yet the church is His body. How needful then is it to look upon the church and appreciate that it's the sphere, the organization of those that are saved. We ought to love the church for that reason as well. Now, let's be quick to say, the Lord purchased the church that way, and He designed it. And in His design, it's absolutely perfect. It doesn't have flaws. It doesn't have that which tarnishes or mars it. It doesn't have imperfections. Now, we know humans do. So I may well have my imperfections, and I may well have my shortcomings, and the same is true of you. But in its design, the church is flawless. It's the sphere of the saved. I hope that too is another factor that moves you and me in a direction to know we ought to love the church. It is not merely a trivial organization of people who like to get together and do things. It is much, much more than that. Do you love it? Do I love it? Reason number one was Jesus loved it. Reason number two, it's the sphere of the saved. What about reason number three? What's another consideration of the New Testament in regard to our devotion for the church? Maybe we should appreciate it like this. Would you reflect with me for just a moment on the influence which the church wields in its existence? None of us need to be reminded that the world in which we live often is shadowed with darkness. It is overwhelmed with what we would call ungodliness. We seemingly see it so rampant, don't we? And could I remind each of us that Jesus said this statement in Matthew 6, 34, Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. This world is never going to be a sinless abode. It will never be a place wherein the great righteousness of God is going to reign supreme in every heart and every nation on earth. That's not going to happen. The world has its share of evil prompted by the actions of the devil and motivated by his efforts toward that end. And there is a body upon earth that opposes that devil in every way. It stands strong and supreme in absolute resistance to him. What is it? The church. The devil will run roughshod over all the ungodly. They don't have anything to oppose him with. They don't have the conviction and the armament that will permit very effective resistance to his efforts. But the church is different. With regard to the church, would you reflect with me on Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16? Even without reading that trio, or rather those four verses in great detail, we remember what a beautiful thrust they have. Jesus, early in His public ministry, said to those of that day, You are the light of the world. Let's pause a moment. 
in that day wherein the Roman Empire and the notable evil for which it stood, that evil that was so prominent, Jesus said to His followers, you're the light of the world. He didn't say that about the Roman Empire. He didn't say that about the other world empires at the time. He said it about the church. Or perhaps I should better say it this way. He said it about His followers. The church would be established a bit later. For you and me today, are you and I the light of the world? If the world has any light at all, it will be us. Jesus said in John 8 verse 12, as He referred to those that would be His followers, those that would be those committed to His way, He said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth Me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of the world. Shall have the, have the light of the Word. And therefore, Jesus said He was the light, and therefore when you and I exhibit His light, we will be the light that's available. Let me offer to all of us another grand reason for why we should love the church. In the midst of a world so often gone wrong, so often gone in the, in the direction that's not good, the church stands forward as the beacon of truth, the beacon of light, the beacon of what's right. We ought to love the church if for no other reason than that one. For doesn't the world need it? Our political arena sure needs it. But the vast majority of nations need it, not just us. The church, you see, has an influence that can be so rich, so moving, so effective. You'll notice on that slide that reference is made to yet another verse. And could I invite your attention to 2 Corinthians 4? Here, there's a very strong statement made. It is to characterize each of us, and it reads like this. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May I ask, who is this? Those who are going to present the light shining out of darkness in the presence and in the face of Jesus Christ. Is that not Christians? Is that not us? We are thus told that we are to be that continuing influence, not only described as the light, of the, the light of the world, but there were two others in that Matthew 5 text. Do you recall the salt of the earth? In that same context, the Lord referred to those as His followers as they too would be the salt of the earth. We each, especially in this part of the world, we know very well what salt does. It gives flavor. It is a preserving agent. It gives taste. You could take a dish, and if it doesn't have sufficient salt, it may appear bland. It may appear rather tasteless. But with a little bit of salt, it can often be very flavorful. We Christians are like that, you know. This world, in the midst of what has so often gone wrong, it is the church that adds the right kind of flavor that pleases God the right kind of taste that it satisfies what His preference is. Don't you love that thought? May I suggest then another reason to love the church is it is the principal agent that shares forth the sweetness of what ought to be true about what God wishes this world to be. For that reason, we close that slide like this.
do you and I love the church for that reason? That's one of the things that makes it so sad when a congregation closes its doors in a given community. Maybe there was a time when that congregation was thriving, and maybe that it was a time when so much good was done, and yet over years it came to be fewer and fewer, less and less. And then it's so sad when finally the decision is made to close its doors because what once was such a beacon of light is not there anymore. What was once such a source of influence for good is no longer there. May you and I love the church, support it, encourage it, and be that vital thing in it which God would have us to be. Three reasons so far to love the church. Jesus loved it. And then we've also noted what a great influence that it has continued to be. What about lesson number four? What's another reason as to why our approach to it should be that of love? Is it not said on several occasions, the church is very near to God? Who wouldn't want to be close to God? Who would not want to be near to Him? Given the choice, who would wish to say, I think I'll stay far from God? Well, surely nobody in his or her right mind. Because to be far from God is to be in a very bad place. To be a place without His guiding hand, without His influence for proper goodness, without His character for what is safe and secure. And yet the church is near to God. Should we not love it for that reason alone? Let's develop some of the things along this line. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. We are again told something there about God in relation to the church. Let me just read that text in our hearing. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? As Paul directed those ancient words to the church at Corinth, he in fact asked this rhetorical question. It was a truth they already knew. And yet Paul asked it to emphasize to them the meaning of that passage. Don't you people know, he in essence would ask them, don't you know you are the temple of God? You are near to Him because He dwells in you. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? If you and I would wish to be near God, we have to be in the church because those are the ones near to Him. Those are the ones in whom His Spirit dwells. They're the ones that are guided by His thinking, motivated by His Word, and who have the assurance they'll live with Him forever. That's, that, that's those people. Why I should love the church? Because the church is near to God. You'll notice on that slide, I've also invited you to consider this interesting application in James 4. In the 8th verse of that chapter, we're told, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. To draw nigh to Him will mean we've put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. It'll mean we have devoted ourselves in relinquishing our being to His. And it'll mean that we live in harmony with His Word. We are in that church. That, of course, means that we have drawn near to God. Question, what about the general world in which we live? Could it be said to be near to God? We know that God has created everything by virtue of His creation, but yet the creation so often has chosen to go its own way. 
and to live in a way that's not consistent with the Word of God. But yet the church is different. The church that our Lord purchased and bought is that organization that does, in fact, lovingly and longingly appreciate His will and who seeks to live in harmony with it. Wasn't it true that Paul to the church at Colossae said, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. So those who have that as their motivation, you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, some additional thoughts about those who are dear to God. Isn't it fascinating that that kind of description will continue onward? For consider the time the Lord returns. You and I don't know when that's going to be. It might be in our lifetime. It might not be. But regardless when it is, there will come a moment when the Son will hand the church over to the Father. So notice, we're close to Him now. We're going to be even closer to Him then. Because the Lord will hand us, if you please, over to Him, and there we'll forever be with Him in heaven. Oh, what closeness that will be. And that kind of closeness is certainly a very rich and beautiful thought. Jesus put it like this. And it's a passage that has rung so often in our thinking. Even though it was on the night before He was crucified, Jesus put it like this. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. He made reference to the Father's house, the abode being prepared by the Lord even now for those who are the church, for those that are the faithful, for those who are His. This kind of thought begins to get incredibly exciting, doesn't it? Oh, how we should love the church. Look how many things the New Testament has reminded us would be ample reasons to direct our love to it. As you close that slide with me, having looked at these four reasons, why don't we look at a fifth one and the lesson will be yours. A fifth reason as to why our approach to the church ought to be not merely an optional sort of consideration but that we should be motivated in love, motivated with great intent. May I say it directly this way, the church is right. It may well be there are some people on earth that seem not to care much about what's right. I understand that. That doesn't mean their approach, though, is right. Because you and I know there is a right. And that which is right it should be something that is exciting to us. It ought to be motivating to us. We should want to be right. The simple reason is God is right. His Word is right. So on the slide, look at this thought. The church pursues what's right. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, Paul, directing these comments to his young son in the faith, put it like this. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness. Now that word righteousness just means the appreciation of, the reality of what is right. 
And yet Timothy, as the upholder of that body, in the sense that he was the proclaimer of messages to it, he was to tell them, you're what's right. You uphold what is right. Today, do you and I love what's right? If we do, we'll have to love the church because the church consists of those who love what's right. You may notice this as well. That profoundness is exemplified in the words of Romans 3.24. There to the church at Rome, a different location, Paul highlighted to them the fact there is what's right. And he never apologized for that. I hope we won't either. Though there may be some who will affirm and acclaim different things in what's right, may we not leave with him the impression that we agree with them. Because only God determines what's right. He determines what's just. And He determines what is to be supported. What's right is highlighted in Titus 2.12 in words like this. It's again a passage very familiar, but sadly it would seem often overlooked. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Wonderful! What does it mean, Paul? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's a wonderful thought that God's grace has appeared to all, meaning that the opportunities extended, but sadly not all will respond in the way that God would wish. Because he goes on to say, God's grace teaches you something. It teaches you've got to deny ungodliness. You've got to deny un- those, those things of the world. And you have to pursue what's right. As you and I open the Word of God, we're reminded the church does that. And aren't we in a position to love it for that reason? 1 Peter 2.24, we'll close that slide with a very simple reflection of a desire to order life according to what's right. As we conclude this lesson this morning, let's conclude it with these questions, which will be very directed for you and for me. Our approach to the church should be one of love. We should really mean that too. Understanding how sweet and special and honored the church is. For after all, Jesus loved it. And if we're commanded to follow Him and be like Him, shouldn't we love it too? And along the way, we learn that the church is the sphere of the saved. And so, if we want to be saved, we ought to love the church. But not only that, it has a profound influence on the world. And shouldn't we pray for that and want to be a part of it? In the fourth place, we learn that the church is near to God and shouldn't we want that? And finally, did we not learn and appreciate the church upholds what's right? Do you, do you love the church? Do I love it? If so, then our attitude will appear and manifest itself in the things that we say about it, in the way that we act toward it, and in the standing that we maintain with respect to it. It might well be that there is at least one in this assembly today Who has not exemplified your love for the church? Maybe you've never become a Christian. You know that you're lost and you know the Lord died for you and you know there's a way to be saved. It's found in the church. And to this point, you've never made that decision. I hope you'll make it today. You see, Jesus in His death for you made it possible for you not only to have your sins forgiven, but to be near to God always. 
You need to obey the gospel, which involves this. Believe in the Lord, won't you? Repent of your sins, won't you? Confess His great name, won't you? And allow yourself to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Won't you do that? If you'll do that, the Lord will add you to His church. You will be forgiven of your sins. And you will be then set on a pathway of rightness, righteous life. But if you have known the sweetness of that kind of a life, but for whatever reason you've allowed the devil to move you in a direction in which that's not it, you can come back to your first love today. You can be put again on that narrow pathway leading to life everlasting. You can be put again in a position of exemplifying love for the church. If that would be the need and desire of your heart, don't delay any longer. But we could ask, won't you allow that love for the church to lead you to repent of those sins that have separated you from the Lord and to make confession of them? If you'll do that, He will reinstate you to a position of salvation and you could again know the deliverance from sin, the guilt being removed, and the right life that you again would want to lead. Today, if we could help you in either of those ways or for prayers of encouragement or strength, we'd be delighted to help. Won't you come? If that's the need of your life, all together we stand and sing.